0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This piece was brought to you by Roberta's. Roberta'spizza.com I'm HRN's Executive Director Katie Mosman-Wadler with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. Last month, Hurricane Florence walloped parts of North Carolina. According to the Weather Channel, it was the wettest tropical storm to ever hit the Tar Heel State. So how did the restaurant industry respond? Some helped FEMA weather the storm, while others got to work feeding people on the ground.
2: We just walked in and said, we know how to cook, what can we do? They said, I need you guys to just cook 150 pork loins. And we were just like, "Uh,
1: okay. Now the attention needs to be on Florence's long-term effect on North Carolina's farming community.
2: The general mood of farmers is one of certainly resilience and almost feels like it's the normal course of business to just get hit by a gigantic hurricane and need to just keep on going.
1: So tune in to this week's Meet and Three on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's show, we have Bruce Bromberg of the Brothers Bromberg of the Blue Ribbon Empire. We catch up with Bruce this week in LA to talk all things Blue Ribbon, and he gives us a preview of Hank's, the Brothers New Burger joint in the Pacific Palisades. And later on, we have Ada Palms live in studio, who tells us how Dad's early days as the disco DJ and senior frogs led to the band's sound and current incarnation of a former Jessica Rabbit admirer. So sit back. Relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes.
3: We talk about
4: food, we talk about music. music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes.
2: Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host. We are out in the gorgeous Palisades of sunny California. With Bruce Brumberg, co-chef, co-owner, Blue Ribbon Restaurants. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Welcome to the West Coast. Well, thank you welcome, very much. Welcome to L.A.
5: Yeah, even more, specifically. Yeah, uh, how are you liking it out here? Uh, doing great so far. Kind of enjoying the whole vibe and... Uh... The access to the beach, the restaurants. I know you came everything. from Hawaii. Big surfer, big out you know, in the water. I'm not. I'm a big water person. Okay. But yeah, not so much a big surfer. I kind of started surfing a little late in life. Yeah. Uh, my ten year old can surf circles around me. And of course. Pretty much does. That's that's how yeah. it goes. She she saves me.
2: Yeah. You okay, Dad? Paddle back for sure. Dad. Actually. Um, so, uh, you and your brother are the, the the men behind the Blue Ribbon Restaurants, uh, which, as an ex-old New Yorker, is legendary from the brasserie to the sushi place to the fried chicken yep. to everything. Um, but I want to go way back before, like, pre-Empire and talk about where you grew up. Did you and your brother awesome. cook together?
5: Like. Did you have a lemonade stand and you're like, I think, I think something's here? <laughs> so my brother and I, yes. We, from a very early age, have always been project-driven and oriented. It was pretty much my brother. He's five years older than me. Oh, I have yeah. two brothers. Our bro- old, my older, oldest brother, Ken, who's our lawyer now and works with us as Ooh, well. that's good. So he's eight years older than me. Eric's five years older than me. But Eric would always have these crazy ideas and projects, and I was the helper. Sure. And that's kind of still the same. (laughs) That's kind of how it still works, although I have plenty of crazy ideas these days. But we did. I mean, for Eric's 13th birthday, I got him a Benihana walk set. and Cluster, knife, and hat. What year was this? This was 1975. I feel like that those would still do well today. Uh, so cool. I feel like they would come back and I be mean, even the, better. the best. We actually did ruin my mom's kitchen. She had to remodel. We melted the, the electric stove oh into the God. cabinets. <laughs> um, and but so, we were obsessed with cooking. Yeah. And our dad was obsessed with cooking. And it was just, it was what we did as a family. Great. We either went to Chinatown in New York we went to the Jewish deli in town. Sure. We went to the, was, What was your deli? Uh, Morristown Deli. I oh, yeah. grew up in Morristown, New Jersey. Oh, great. So, and it's still there. When I go back to Morristown, I still go... Which and is sit rare. At the table and eat at the Morristown Deli. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, food has just always been paramount in our world. So, um, knowing
2: that food was always big, uh, and knowing that you and your brother did projects together, you know... This is the late 70s into the 80s. Opening restaurants was not what it is today where it's like – it's like that is a respectable (laughs) thing to do. And in fact, if if your daughter comes home and says, I'm giving up the board or I'm going to
5: do a surfing pop-up restaurant, you're like, that's wonderful. It's It's, it's amazing because when Eric first went to cooking school and that was in 1984, 85, he went to Cordon Bleu in Paris – it was kind of an unheard of thing. I mean, there was a handful. Nobody considered it as a legitimate profession. No. First off, graduated from college. What do you want to do? Oh, I want to go to cooking school. So France. he went to college and then went to cooking school? He went school. to school in New Orleans. He went to Tulane, graduated, had little direction. Except for uh, where Berber Street was, yeah, and the yeah, restaurant. Exactly. I mean, Food there and, at the time, was and the he track. got super into food there you and go. cooking in New Orleans. He was a short order cook at a place called Cooter Brown's, sure, which you know was his first thing, making po'boys and uh, muffaladas and that kind of stuff. He kind of got the bug. My dad used to have a house in the south south of France, and so we had spent summers there, and we had we were amazed by this one restaurant in town.
2: So your your parents bring you a little bit of influence because having yeah, having absolutely. that European you know, I'm also a descendant um, of European Jews yeah, yeah. and I found that like cooking food and, and knowing about food and three course menus with even though it wasn't course that but you had your salad, you sure, had an entree
5: like sure. that was just a, a given before it even had a name to it. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, the whole foodie culture and that kind of thing, whatever that really is, food was just utterly essential to everything we it was did. Life. It was life. It was life. And it was respected. And, you know, we learned from our grandmother that it was like every single thing you touch, everything you do, there's a reason, there's a method, there's a respect. We learned that from her. Our dad was really the adventure mm. and the excitement around food. He was obsessed with restaurants. His whole downstairs of his house is covered in menus from around uh. the world, all framed, beautiful frames, signed by chefs. And he's he's been doing this since the late '50s, early '60s, since he was a you know young <laughs> uh, whatever doing his junior year abroad in in Belgium. So it's just always been part of our world. Like, where are we going? What's the next meal? You know, I mean, that's you go, what my yeah. wife says I'm always thinking about my
2: next yeah. meal when I'm eating.
5: And then I think when Eric did finally go to cooking school and even came back, and for years in the late 80s, it was still such a small handful of people who were successful. And almost none of them were chefs. Right. There were some restaurant owners, but chefs didn't necessarily own restaurants. And there was a slight right. shift in the late 80s where there were a couple of guys who kind of came to prominence as... Partners, or maybe even the owners, like the Wolfgang Pucks, yeah, it was sort of maybe the, very early Wolfgang Jeremiah Towers, Jeremiah Towers think, the Shape the yeah, sort like Panisse, and that kind of stuff yeah. was like the very beginning of where chefs actually started to get a voice. Eric's first job was like working for Jonathan Waxman at Jams in New York City, no, which was like, I Seven, I think, eighty-six. I'm sure there's some stories for off radio that. I there's heard. many off radio <laughs> stories for that one. And so for yourself, you follow in the same footsteps. You also go to culinary school, right? Yeah, so I graduated college and worked right. with very little direction, sure. as well. But I'm sure
2: your father was super pumped. He's yeah. like, my two of my boys want to go. Yeah, to cook.
5: it was like it's funny because yeah, the the chefs wound up not being the black sheeps so of the family. I know. Um, yeah, I went to school in Colorado, University of Colorado in Boulder. And yeah, I used to cook at school too Because my brother would send me letters or whatever Recipes from Paris He was in Paris while I was in college And it was just kind of, you know It was always fun to us It was like creating things It was playing It was just cool And, you know, uh, France does
2: have a... Legendary history of these late night bistros and brasseries, right, right. and like it's because you know the chefs work and then get off, and but also just the I mean, it's such a romantic thing <laughs> right. that New right, York right, right. has that romanticism. Uh, but the late night food scene was like, and don't get me wrong, I love the
5: Moonstruck Diner, but it was like the ninety in the not early 90s, 89, 90, like there were a handful of places serving food after midnight. New York City is unquestionably the city that never sleeps. But there was nowhere to friggin' eat after, no. you know, 11, 30, 12 o'clock. I mean, nothing Chefs good. would go home. Yeah. There'd be a guy still in the kitchen and he would, you know, make a burger and fries and, you know, you could get a goat cheese salad at Lucky Strike or the, there were some places. Sure, because that's, that's and, what you want, yeah. right? <laughs> it was always a little scary eating there, but it yeah. was a restaurant open until yeah. two or three. I think they served till two. Um, but there was nothing that you could really go unwind and spoil yourself. Yeah. and Just th- feel like you were having that experience that everyone else has when they come to your restaurant. Right. And that was the thing for the chefs. And what Eric and I loved about Paris was Beaufanger, No pied de Cochon, La Compole, These restaurants that you would walk into at two thirty, three 3 o'clock in the morning. And it was the exact same thing. It was like primetime. Yeah, it was like primetime. Yeah. And you would walk in and it would be buzzing and it would be cool and oysters were flying. And it was amazing when we kind of had this idea of bringing it to New York. People, no one got it. They I'm, were like, what are you doing? That's, we're, you're you're right. putting an oyster bar in the front of your restaurant? I wouldn't do that. New Yorkers won't go for that. Yeah. And, and we heard all these things. And you have to remember,
2: because so now it's just like there's so much of what you guys done and like the Odeon and, you yeah, know, like yeah, places yeah. like that, you know, the whole grocery yeah. where it's like, yeah, New York has just has this type of restaurant. But you guys were at the forefront of that. So it's,
5: let's paint the scene. It's late 80s, early and 90s. I'll say one other thing is we had basically no money. So well, we that's what I want to talk about. How did you – because, you know – We couldn't make it look like a Parisian browser. We couldn't even buy the tile for the floor. Like, right. Everything was expensive to make that. Because so we, now you're going to, like, I want the French bistro package. Yes. And they go, yeah, here you go. Yeah, yeah. Here's the bulbs. Exactly. Here's the tile. Here's the bulbs. Here's that. I mean, yeah. we couldn't afford any of that. We had to build it ourselves. We didn't really know how to build. Um, so it, it was, it's a yellow box Is really what Blue Ribbon is We built those banquettes We built that bar ourselves We put the whole place in And it doesn't look like a French brasserie But the spirit of it yeah. was and It implied it, it But it was just a room
2: that But that's the beautiful really thing about New York yeah. Where it's uh, You can take the idea Of something that exists somewhere else in the world and then sort of make it its own And then it becomes its own thing Because the New York brasserie Is its own thing compared to like The Paris brasserie And in some ways And we'll get to this I don't want to say surpassed But there are things When you bring 100%. in the cause you there are some things With the American element um, There are a lot of rules yeah. In the Paris brasserie and, it's like, and if you want something That's done served at 4am And it's 401 He's So sad Yeah, yeah darn. See you tomorrow See ya, not gonna happen But so, it's the 90s and you open the doors and it's a new concept But obviously there are other chefs who have been to Paris or been around the world, traveled it What was the response like? Like, were the chefs first? So uh, did you have people
5: during the normal hours? <laughs> so we did We actually opened and we were, because we, me, my brother, and our team yeah. built it from day one it was an interesting transformation. When we opened, we already had a fair amount of neighborhood support. Sure. It was a very different neighborhood back in those days. We had the social club, oh, yeah. Sullivan Street Social Club, uh, just up the street. It was a very different neighborhood. But we had earned the respect of the neighbors. So as we opened, we actually did okay business kind of from the get-up. Yeah. But 10.30, it was over. And we sat there every single night Mm -hmm. until 4 o'clock in the morning. And I would say the first three and a half months, it was really the end of January. We opened November 3rd, 1992, the day Clinton was elected, Mm -hmm. election day. It was really not until January. I remember it, actually. It was Martin Luther King Day, and nobody had walked in. It was a Sunday night, right? We were (laughs) going to be closed on Martin Luther King. We were always closed on Mondays. It was a Sunday night and I'm a, I literally, I called Eric. Eric had gone home to walk our dog. We lived, you sure. know, a block away and I called him and I was like, literally, dude, nobody has walked in this restaurant since nine forty-five. It's three 15. I'm going to close. And he was like, you know what? Do what you want. Yeah. I went downstairs and I printed out a sign that said, you know, we're closing. I'll see. We'll see you on Tuesday. As I came upstairs and I was taping the sign in, a van pulled up in front. Fourteen people come out of this van. It's Charlie Trotter and his whole team. Wow. They had done a James Beard event, and they walked over. I crumpled the sign up. three in the morning. Three in the morning. I crumpled the sign up, threw it in the garbage can. We laid all the tables down the middle of Blue Ribbon, and Charlie had dinner with... His whole team And they ordered One of everything Off the menu And that's when you knew you had something And that was like Such an amazing moment And literally The next week You know This guy came in Drew, Drew Nearport Was a huge sure. por- portion of it Because he was down At Tribeca Real champion he, of that area too. Real champion of yeah. that area He lived in the West Village So on his way home He goes by You know Blue Ribbon He sees an Oysters And the Sierra Nevada sign In the window He's coming in So he started coming in all of a sudden, Drew's coming back with Wolfgang Puck one night, rog- Roger Verge, another night. He brings in Bernard Oiseau, like all these like Legend. legends. Yeah. And in a matter of months, it went from us sitting there doing... We actually had a drum set, amps, in the basement. <laughs> and we would sit there. We were in the sub-basement. Yeah. And nobody could hear us. We would literally jam. We'd have our manager upstairs watching the front door if someone came in. He'd call down, and we'd go. like put everything away. We'd run to the kitchen, cook the food. But that's how slow it was in the beginning.
2: Oh, my God. And well, then,
5: well, listen, I want to take a quick break, yeah. because it's not slow anymore.
2: Because <laughs> if you can hear the construction in the background, it's actually two locations being built yeah. across the street. I want to talk about how you go from one restaurant playing jams at night with no one <laughs> in there to yeah. a national empire. When we come back on Snacky Tunes, here's a song from the archives on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Check, check, back to Snacky Tunes. We're sitting here with Bruce, co co-owner of Blue Ribbon Restaurants. Uh, so now that you finally hit your tipping point in New York, and you're sort of off to the races and you're a neighborhood spot, which I will say again and again that you really only find success in a restaurant if it becomes a neighborhood spot. Uh, that's how we approach everything we do. and uh, Which is pretty impressive because what you've created is a, uh, a giant... Empire? We can say Empire. There's enough. It's okay. You don't <laughs> I've heard, have to say it. I've, I've, heard, it, I've heard it before. Yeah. You've heard it before. But, um, so how did you go from, instead of getting down the road, because we'll get to that yeah. about like when you go like,
5: we're just, it's, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, yeah, but like, yeah. how'd you go from 1 to 2? 1 to 2, to this day, is probably the toughest transition sure. we've ever had. Yeah. It was really, really hard. We had this kind of, it, it's a funny story. We were bursting at the seams at Blue Ribbon. So we never expected to do what we were doing there. I mean, we literally were turning the table seven times in a night. So, so even when it was like four in the morning? Yeah, from four to four, we would have six, seven full turns in that restaurant. And it's only 50 seats, but yeah. it's a tiny little restaurant doing 300 plus covers. We had nowhere for food, we had nowhere for our wine. We were bursting at the seams. So So you had to get the drum kit out. there. (laughs) The drum kit was now gone. The amps were, (laughs) they found a new home. And that's another story. And we reached out to our landlord and we said, any storage spots, anything. Yeah. In the building on the street, he had a building, you know, 50 yards down at 119 Sullivan, Blue Ribbons 97 Sullivan. He said, "It's, it's an interesting space. It used to be the stroller storage for the apartment building. But you can absolutely use it. There's a boiler room. But there's a small room in the front. You could use that and put your office there. Sure. So we were like, great. We'll do, put the office down there. We'll move this thing out. So we go and we look at it. It's actually a storefront. So our minds start sure. spinning. Crazy Here we go. Projects. There you go. <laughs> there we go. Another project. Um, it really, we weren't looking to open another restaurant. It just kind of happened. So there was no exhaust. There was no way to exhaust this place. Uh, to, for the kitchen. We couldn't build a kitchen. So we were like fish shop. We'll do it like the old fish shop in right. Marstown, you know, sawdust on the floor. We'll make a super cool fish shop. And then one day we were out eating sushi and we got treated really terribly in kind of a high-end sushi place. And my brother looked at me and he said, why don't we just make our own sushi place? Huh? And I was like, that's a really cool idea. That's even better than the fish market. So what year so is this? This is 1994. Okay, so, so 94. again, sushi is not what it is
2: today. Nothing, and also, <laughs> yeah. and no disrespect to Jewish guys,
5: <laughs> did not open sushi from New restaurants. York. Did not <laughs> open sushi no, restaurants. Not even close. So, how did you go about that? So we had the idea. Now that seed was planted. We were really focused on how to do it. Right? We didn't really know that much about sushi. We liked eating it. So we started going to every sushi restaurant in New York City. What a pain! Yeah, what a pain! Right. But what we realized is that there was no middle ground. There was, you know, sushi say at you know two hundred in those days, 150 dollars a person, which was I mean even today it's still even today is yeah. a ton, but it was ridiculous, right? Yeah. Only Japanese businessmen could afford to go there, you know, and we would go to those places and we didn't get treated very well. So there was that, and then there was the. Kind of... Dojo. Dojo. Yeah, like, you know. (laughs) Those places which were okay, but they weren't really Japanese. They weren't traditional. They were kind of a thing. They were sometimes dirty. The lighting wasn't nice. There there were... Tomoe was uh, down in Soho, and everybody liked that. But it was, again, it was kind of a dirty place. It didn't quite have the aesthetic that we thought we could do. So, anyway, make a long story short, we ate in a lot of places. And one night we go to Sushi Se spend all this money had a really mediocre experience they basically were rude to us again in this thing we went home we parked our car and we took it for some reason my brother and i took a different route home we were walking the dog and we took a different uh route back to the house than we normally did and we walked down lexington and we were now living up in uh murray hill sure and uh we took a different route home And we walked by this little place, no one in it. One guy sitting at the bar, one little dude behind the sushi bar. And we walked in, we said, let's just get one hand roll, Asked the guy for a hand roll, made us a spicy scallop hand roll, and we both looked at each other. This is literally after eating in 30 or 40 restaurants over the last three months, uh, sushi restaurants. We looked at each other and we were like, we're done. This is it. It's the best thing we have eaten in any sushi restaurant. The rice is perfect. The, everything about this so is just amazing. That guy? So we start talking to him. It was a courting process. Oh, of course. It took a few months, but we invited him. But he had opened this place. All the cabs the, uh, had moved in in that area, so it was like curry in a hurry. Sure. And that neighborhood really changed. He was maybe year six or seven. He, wasn't, he was literally surrounded by cabs eating fast food curry. Sure. So he, his business had tailed off. But we just thought he was amazing. We started bringing him lobsters and crawfish and frogs and eggs and all this, like, non-traditional sushi stuff. He kind of, we kind of won him over a little bit. And one night we invited him and his wife down to Blue Ribbon. It was a Saturday night, 1994. Sure. The place was two and a half hour wait, lines out the door. He just kept looking at us saying, very good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we said, will you be our partner? He sold his place. Like within a month, amazing came. We told him we'd open in two months. We opened like eleven months later, but we finally opened it, and he was he was our partner for twenty two years. And the response yeah. to that was brutal. Yeah, <laughs> it was an incredibly difficult beginning because of because we had, had this. Kind of, well, I think a number of factors. One, we were kind of blacklisted by all the purveyors. Just because, even though he was Japanese, we were these Jewish guys from New Jersey. People did the, the, it wasn't accepted. They're not going to sell you the tuna No, we didn't get the good tuna at all. And Toshi couldn't believe it. He was dumbstruck that all this was going on. We were struggling. Like, it was a really hard beginning. We also, and we learned a valuable lesson. We thought just because we were Blue Ribbon, just because we were busy down the street, just because people loved us that they were going to love the next thing we did just because and they didn't and it was a super difficult beginning it was a different kind of place it was not your sushi say and it wasn't your comfortable little village sushi it was somewhere in the middle and I think now it feels more like your comfortable Soho spot but back then it was like really it was a different kind of thing it was it just wasn't in everyone's wheelhouse People were literally begging me to run down the street and get them the spicy catfish, or a duck club, or fried That's chicken. That's how they probably thought that they could get in. Like, oh, we'll get a seat <laughs> here. I was just so upset about it. It was, a, it was a really difficult time.
2: And then what changed there, and then what
5: started you on your path to like restaurant three, four, and five? Then, um, believe it or not, and I don't know that this ever really happens much anymore, but Ruth Reichel wrote a review. Of us. And it wasn't glowing. But it said we were really good. They were like caveats. Sure. Like, And I think the title was Sushi for Novices. And in a sense, that is a little bit what we were doing. It wasn't completely wrong. It was traditional Japanese sushi. But we were trying to simplify it for the American palate and our customers. We, we wanted people to feel comfortable. We didn't want people to walk in and not know what to do with this dish or this thing. you know we, we tried to make it accessible so that that and, and it's a long story and we were literally days from closing that restaurant we had nobody coming to work Toshi was the only guy making the sushi Eric and I were in the kitchen I was almost starting to learn how to make sushi because nobody would work for me and Eric and it was just a super difficult time but this happened a couple of things aligned we started to get some traction we started to build that local clientele, but it was a good nine months in, and it was quite a hole we had dug ourselves. So it was a learning moment. And so now that number two is up and running, and you start thinking about the
2: future because one's running and two's running, how do you start picking the cuisines in the restaurant? Because you eventually spend fried chicken and things like that. Like, do you, do you say that you're going to keep? going into new cuisines or do you try and make it easier for number three you know we we still
5: haven't really learned (laughs) it's coming up on 26 years i'm not sure we've learned that yes there would be way simpler simpler way to do this would be to replicate what we've done over and over again we don't have a plan we do what inspires us if we see a space my brother may say this like looks like it would be an awesome, you know, bakery, fish joint, wine bar. We we don't sit there and come up with like a pro forma and a plan and do, you know, density studies on the neighborhood. We just kind of do what feels like it would be cool. Now, I want to talk, I want
2: to jump ahead a little bit
5: because eventually you
2: start moving beyond New York. Yeah. Um, and you have this now national empire. You were in Vegas and yep. you're in other locations. How do you grow and man- maintain that so that when you walk in, I mean, obviously, yeah. every restaurant's going to be different, and the Brooklyn Bowl one but, is different than but, that. But, but like,
5: what's the core? The core is our approach to hospitality. Sure. And it's two pronged, I would say. We have the same approach to everything we do there are two things that are paramount to us. One is our staff is happy mm-hmm. and has a blissful environment to work in. Mm-hmm. And our customers are happy and have a blissful environment to dine in. So if we can, that's our focus. That's me and my brother and our team's focus each and every day. We consider the, our team as an incredibly important element. And I think to me the most rewarding thing I ever hear isn't that you make the best food, your fried chicken is the best thing I've ever had. Mm-hmm. It's whenever I walk into a Blue Ribbon, I feel like I'm at a Blue Ribbon. I feel like I've come home. I feel comfortable. It's, there's, there's that same vibe. And I think that's what we, at the end of the day, try to create. Opening night of Blue Ribbon, 1992, there were 14 employees. 11 of the 14 employees still work for us and our partners. 26 years later. 26 years later. And there's four guys who worked with my brother prior to Blue Ribbon who've been with us for over 30 years. So it's it's about that core and how that core branches out. That's what enables us to open more places. And it it has to feel right all throughout the whole thing. And it has to be amazing for our staff, right? It has to be a place you want to Come to work. When you leave the restaurant at night, you have to be excited about coming back the next day. I think that's what enables us to be a really great hospitality spot. We may, may not be the greatest at folding napkins sure. or you know, making sure your water glass is just so every single step of service. But I think there's a feeling in our restaurants that we genuinely care. And now, speaking of your the restaurant. restaurant. Sorry, and speaking of new
2: restaurants, I want to make sure that we touch on the two that are opening up here. Cool. uh, Because you're opening up Blue Ribbon Sushi. Yes. uh, And you're also opening up Burger Place. Right. Um, What made you decide to bring those out? Because one could argue that... LA is in need of another French brasserie late night style place more than another sushi (laughs) burger place place. what was the
5: decision (laughs) 100% disagree so this is a really exciting project for us it's uh, another project by Rick Caruso and Caruso Affiliated Mm -hmm. they did The Grove they reached out to us years ago and we opened three years ago in The Grove so we do have a sushi place at The Grove Uh, that's been a fantastic uh, experience for us really one of our one of the best restaurants we have. Um, sorry, Kona the dog is snoring loud. Dog, dog snoring in the background is completely loud on this podcast. Oh my God. Uh, that's funny. Um, so this opportunity came for the Palisades, and Rick and I sat down. And we talked a little, maybe a year and a half ago about this project coming up, and it was that. We both felt that on this side of town, as everyone calls it, the West Side. Sure. I only learned that recently. Oh, yeah. But on the West Side, there was a need for uh, a sushi spot, and we just thought that we could do this. It's not a very big restaurant. Yeah. It's kind of small. It feels great, and I think uh, the sushi concept is going to be a little bit more like the original sushi in New York. That's we have awesome. Very minimal kitchen, small kitchen that will be cooked food, but. It's going to be a kind of sushi focused restaurant. So we're instead of calling it sushi bar and grill like we do at the Grove, we're actually just calling this Blue Ribbon Sushi, like we did at 119, because I think it'll be more similar to the Soho and the Burger Place. So the Burger Place is extremely exciting. Yes, again, a new another new concept. It's Hanks, right? It's Hanks. Yeah, so. Hank was Rick's dad who passed away a year and a half ago or so, and Rick and I started talking about it too, and he said, what do you think about this concept? And I immediately latched onto it. I love the idea. I think it's a bit more than just a burger joint. It's kind of a corner bar. Great. It's going to be that, Down. that place. You know, you wings, fondue, some sandwiches. Sure. We're picking up some ideas. There was a deli in town called Mort's for many oh, years. Oh, yeah. I sat down with Mort's uh, wife, uh, Bobby, a couple days ago. She showed me all the menus, and you know, I just, I just love that kind of corner bar vibe. I love it, and I think that's what this is going to be—a place you can go hang and drink, Sport, chill, like watch, that. watch a game, go with your kids after their game. Sure. So it's again, new, you know, new things are always exciting, no matter what. <laughs> no, <laughs> a little the, stressful. But little exciting, stressful. Exciting. Yeah.
2: Um, and before we leave, there's one thing I want to yeah. touch on because. Uh, I know even though you had to move the amps out and the drums out and the brasserie, music has always been a huge part of 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 what you guys do. And the soundtracks have always been good. And not only that, you've wound up in some of the Brooklyn Bowl venues. And so music has always been associated with that. And, you know, with every location, every restaurant, um, how do you pick your music? And why has music been, you know, you could easily at your level be like, make a playlist.
5: I'm out. No, no, that's. Yeah, music has always been just incredibly important to us. From you know a young age, we grew up in the '70s. My brothers, my older brother was a teenager in the '70s. Um, music was just kind of you know in our world, food and music. That was always it. Right? We all played guitar when we were little kids. We had a band on the streets. One guy played bass. One you know sure. kid played drums and. We made a lot of noise. We used to set up on the driveway in front of the house in the summer and jam out and all that kind of stuff. So it's just always been part of it. Um, As far as the music in the room, uh, our opening night bartender, Peter Shalvoy, who still works with us, he moved out to Vegas a few years ago. When We moved out to Vegas, he's done our soundtracks from day one. Amazing, and you know, Pork Chop Productions is what he used to be now, it's uh, Peter Chowboy. Um, but <laughs> it's funny what I would love to
2: talk about what that day was when he's like, I gotta hang up Pork Chop. Yeah, I don't I know what happened out. that day, yeah, whatever I that day what was, that happened, but you know,
5: maybe people still call him Pork Chop, so it's all good. But he just had this great vibe T- to this day, it's yeah. That music, I mean. Everyone who sits in, at Blue Ribbon loves that soundtrack. And Peter's now going out, you know, these this guy's flying him out here. Sure. This has been going on for years, you know, where P. Diddy, like, flies over here, because he sat in Blue Ribbon and listened to the music. And it's curation. It's curation, and Peter's just always been that guy, the vibe. To me, you know, what one of my greatest nights of all time, not to diverge, was... Stevie Wonder's always been kind of a big part of our soundtrack in that restaurant. And, like, the greatest night was Stevie Wonder in the restaurant for the second or third night in a row, sitting on the big round booth right Mm -hmm. in the door. And I forget which song, but, you know, Superstition or Something comes on. And all of a sudden, you know, he just starts singing and he's waving back and forth. The whole restaurant is doing, you know... It's to me. It's all part of what Blue Ribbon has always been. It's just, it's just a huge part of us. Awesome. Well, Bruce, thank you so much.
2: Awesome. Congratulations. Uh, if you're in Vegas, if you're in New York, soon to be out here in California, yep. check out the restaurants. If you're visiting, you're in town. It's always a good time. Uh, stick around. We have a live band coming up in the second half of the show. And here's another tune from the archives on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. <laughs>
5: Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage.
2: Welcome back to Snacking Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. Uh, we have 88 Palms live in studio today. Welcome. Hi.
3: Hello. Here.
2: Well, we've got two off mic and one on mic. So we do you want to introduce who's in the room.
1: Um, So we have Kaito Sanchez and Joshua Ruha, um, two of my guys. um, We all play together around town. We're missing uh, Jonathan Granoff and Morgan Wiley, who play bass and keys with us. Um, They're elsewhere in the world today.
2: And Morgan, for old Snacky Tunes listeners, might remember when he was on As Midnight Magic, which is what we heard right before we came back yes from Brink yes uh, and, uh, I think it's
1: really Kai- like, and Kaito plays with Midnight Magic yeah. as well yeah
2: I think that was eight years ago yeah which is crazy yeah <laughs> uh, so we did that
6: here don't
2: we? yeah we, we did it, it here magic, we, no? yeah we fit all six people in here plus <laughs> us plus <laughs> friends Uh, It was pretty crammed in, crammed in. I think that was one of the most packed we'd ever done. It was was hot. It was great, though. I mean, I feel like that was, all this and this music is also just like all summer, tropical, really amazing summer vibes. Um, Yes. Right before we started, you had mentioned that there's a number of rules for 88 (laughs) pubs. Rule number three being keep a jazz mentality. What are some of the other rules and how have they developed and uh, um, affected the, the way the band creates and, and performs?
1: The the number one rule is don't look Rhea in the eyes. Perfect.
2: Sorry, um, I've broken well,
1: uh, it. <laughs> which everyone breaks all the time, but just just know that I'll I'll, I'll come for you in some sort of way like
6: is it eyes or eyes. Eyes <laughs> <that?
1: laughs> Don't look Ria in the eyes. Kaito aye, gets aye. the the other view most of the time. Classic drummer. <laughs> the drummer.
2: Classic drummer view. Classic
1: drummer view. Um, let's see. Number number two is um, vibes. Just vibes. Just feel it. Just go with it. Um, we end up improvising a lot because we all have so many other different projects going on. There's not a lot of time for rehearsals and, and practicing, so... Um, it ends up being a lot of jazz, rule number three, jazz mentality. Um, keep it, you know, there, there are no wrong chords, just jazz chords.
6: <laughs> well, it's, it's more about uh, the, the, perf- the performance, you know, like, I feel like jazz musicians are just so good on their craft that they don't rehearse.
4: Yeah.
6: And they know the tune, they're just like, okay, be, be comfortable, very solid, very confident but also be playful
2: it's really i mean it's like uh here's the structure you know the song the play play within it mm-hmm. uh play around it
6: and listen to everybody it's yeah a conversation. Listen to right yeah, yeah
2: the, the conversation place, especially for people i mean you you're all in bands uh, you're all from diverse backgrounds. You're all from different musical upbringings. But you know, when bands try to play the same note every time, especially when it's this type of music, it feels a little soulless.
4: Yeah,
1: Yeah, that's, I think that's one of the fun things about the, the 88 Palm shows, is nobody ever gets the same show twice. <laughs> it's well, yeah. like, even if
2: you want e- it. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: even if we try to put a structure on it and make it a thing. you know, Inevitably, somebody's <laughs> going to kind of be in a moment, and I'm looking at Kaito
2: like... Yeah, how do you how do you deal with that type of I mean, You've only been playing live since two thousand seventeen. So yeah. the live show is still relatively new. How do you communicate? Uh and how do you let someone just if they're living inside a moment, how do you let them live without getting uh frustrated?
1: Um there's no there's no frustration. I, I mean, you know, know, we've we're all we've all been playing together in different respects for for long enough, but it's like we recognize when somebody is kind of Feeling something, and in a moment, like I like to just let them let them have that moment. Sometimes it's me, sometimes it's Kaito, sometimes it's Josh, sometimes it's uh, Dominica from Underground System who joined us on flute the other day, you know, and I just let her rip and do her thing, um, you know, until it felt like the right moment to go back into the to the track. Uh,
2: that that's amazing, and so like the songs are structured. I mean, obviously the recorded is you set something down, but how did you get to for the EP a structure that for a show that's ever evolving, and I'm sure practice is the same way. How did you go? Okay, that's the version.
1: Um, honestly, um, a lot of the EP, Morgan and I wrote really quickly together. Um, I kind of came into the studio one day, and he had a couple kind of like ideas floating around that he had started. And he was playing me a bunch of stuff and, and I started kind of improvising and singing on top of it. He stuck a microphone in front of me and, you know, we very quickly had kind of rough ideas of what the songs were going to be. We did a little bit of fine tuning in terms of like the arrangements and structures, but um, the versions that are on the EP are not that different. Um, And they're pretty non-traditional structurally. Yes. Um, which is kind of a byproduct of, of... Rule number two. Rule number two, which is jazz vibes. mentality. No, that's rule number three. Just feeling it. And, you know, like I, you know, I hadn't really written a lot of stuff like that with, um, with anybody else previous to that. So both of us were just kind of going off of like, I don't know, does it feel right? Does it feel like it should end here? And not really operating within a traditional songwriting structure... Um, which makes it really challenging and really interesting to do these songs live.
2: <laughs> Can we hear something live?
1: Yeah, let's let's play something live.
2: What are you going to play for us first?
1: Um, so this first song is called Downtown. Um, this is another one. We have a little... This isn't um, out on you know Spotify and all of that just yet. Um, this is on our, our SoundCloud. We have a little mixtape that we threw up that's just a lot of kind of really... Um, Fun, houseier, easy things that we just threw together that we'll be releasing at some point. But
2: sometime. 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 You know, one, thing, right. one thing
1: at a time here.
2: Well, here we go with 88 Pubs Live on Snacky Tunes. <laughs> Downtown. <laughs> I couldn't help but eavesdrop while you were doing soundtrack and you said that Jessica Rabbit was a guiding <laughs> light from your childhood to present day.
1: <laughs> yeah. How does that work? How does that work? <laughs> um, I was just, I guess, really inspired by this powerful... Uh, female character who um, used her kind of talents and abilities in order to um, kind of transport people to another kind of fantasy realm, I think. Oh, wow. Oh, we have pizza now. This is incredible. Snacky tunes. (laughs) Snacky tunes. Wow. Um, Yeah, and I I just always, um, obviously, she's very beautiful character and um i always really respected the fact too that she loved little roger rabbit for his talents and abilities and not necessarily based on looks like a you know like a woman of her stature could so um yeah and i just i just love that i love the the sexiness of it and the embracing that sexuality and like kind of and not being not shying away from it was uh I think an important part of that.
2: I think the other interesting thing too is that this has, your sound has such like a classic New York eh. disco, but most of you from the West Coast. So, uh, how did that sound become the guiding light as well for 88 Pubs? And how does that kind of reflect, you know, the music that you make as a band?
1: So, um, I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah, originally, Um, but my father's from Mexico, so I grew up spending um, a lot of time in Mexico as well, like beaches and palm trees and kind of tropical vibes. Um, Morgan is from um, Las Vegas, originally spent some time in L.A., and we both just have this kind of like desert affinity for this sort of like tropical Sound, but then you know, both of us ended up transplanting to, to New York City, and um, I mean, and Kaito as well, who plays a lot of the percussion and guitar and bass too, on on and yeah, on the whole record, um, from Panama and been in New York as well. And so there's a definite wide range of influences. My my father was a, a disco DJ in the '70s in Mexico. Um, really?
2: Do you know the name of the clubs?
1: Um, have you ever heard of a little club called Senor Frogs? Oh, <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> it's so, like it's
2: like Pizzeria Uno. And like the original is amazing, <laughs> and every other one is terrible. Yes. Yeah, but so, like the original is like, oh well, if they're all like this, this makes sense. Yeah. Play in
6: the arena.
2: Yeah, yeah, so
1: the original one was in Mazatlan, Sinaloa, in the 70s, and his best friend from high school started it. So they were all running I mean, it. When
2: he knew Senor Frog, the original.
1: The Yeah, El, Señor <laughs> El frog. Senor Frog. El Senor Frog. was that a dude?
4: No.
2: Yeah. Uh, but if it's his friend started frog, it, yeah. yeah. It's
1: yeah. So, example. <laughs> so, uh So, yeah, so that was how... Um, so he started, you know, he was bartending and bar backing and a waiter and, and DJing. And, um, and at that time, a lot of the music cats from L.A. would come down to get away from the, the scene there. It was a little bit, it sounds like kind of what Tulum is to New York right now, sure. you know, where everyone goes to get away. So my dad was, you know, running hotels and nightclubs in that scene and doing like volleyball on the beach with Bob Dylan and dancing with John Travolta and the clubs. And, and, um, he, you know, raised me with a, a, very like prominent disco kind of mentality that I didn't embrace at first when I was in my heavy rock and roll phase. Sure. And then as I got older and got more into, you know, like dance music and house and its origins and disco, I, I began to understand that, um, Papa Alberto really actually knew what he was talking about.
2: <laughs> we eventually get there. Is there one record that sums up your child? Like if you heard it, it would take you right back to your dad playing records for you.
1: Um, anything Beatles or Led Zeppelin. Um, and, no,
2: but not a Maybe disco, a disco record. record. But not a
1: disco. The disco didn't come until later. I think the. I think one of the things that that really cemented that for me, he he gave me. He gave me my first Depeche Mode CD when I was like 15, and that really changed a lot of things for me. And then it was like, I remember around the time when um, when Daft Punk released their last album, Random Access Memories, and asking my dad about Nile Rodgers and him sort of giving me like a verbal backhand and being like, of course, I know about <laughs> Nile Rogers and Maroder and Donna Summer and all. And he was, he was like.
2: Uh, Speaking of Maroto, he just announced his first live tour ever at oh. like 79. Whoa. Yeah.
1: He's wow. a beast, man. He, yeah. Nile
2: um, Rodgers. No, Jojo uh, oh. Maroto. Like four dates of the UK.
1: A lot of, a lot of respect for yeah. for Mar- Yeah, yeah Mar- sure. To Take your order. time. Take your time.
2: <laughs> yeah. Take your time. Can we hear another song?
1: Uh, yeah. Let's do another one. This is, um, (laughs) we just, we just decided to do this one on the fly, um, switch it up, do something a little, a little faster. Um, this is called Show Me What You Taste Like, and this is not out yet either. We're just doing a bunch of exclusives for you guys today.
2: Perfect. We love a -a Snacketooth
1: exclusive.
2: (laughs) We used to have an air horn that, why anyone would say that, but that air horn got retired, so... Yeah, there it is. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Yes, the 88 Palms version of an air horn. Perfect. Um. that you're always in a phase of recording uh, how does that work especially with all these demos and everything is it just one at a time is it who's ever around I mean it, it, it's a eclectic group of musicians to pin down in a room so how does that work
1: yeah so um, usually how it ends up working is um, I mean it's really honestly it's really hard anytime um, we meet up in the studio to not write something new and it's and it's also really cool um, the the space we work out of in in Greenpoint, um, there's always all kinds of amazing people sort of floating around the space and you never really know who's going to like drop in or be around. And so a lot of the what's on the EP, you know, Morgan and I kind of wrote the basis for it together. And then, you know, as he's in the studio and people are coming by, he can kind of like grab people and like, hey, can you lay down a bass part on this real quick? Hey, you want to do some drums on this? Hey, you want to do some guitar? And then we kind of come back together and like retool the whole thing and um, and or sometimes we'll be in there working on something and someone shows up and they have something to contribute so it's just like yeah it's, it's that it's that kind of jazz mentality again where rule it's just like three. free form um, rule recording one. rule number one is yeah well but, we've all um, broken
2: the, I'm sorry I keep breaking rule number one I keep looking at you <laughs> I apologize I'll just stare at you ask questions over there yes
4: one of yeah, you're okay. gonna have to I get know. through. No. To
2: look there, and then she'll wink, <laughs> <laughs> and then i will come back to me. Uh, so you have a DJ gig coming up on the 17th. What, what can one expect in a, a DJ set?
1: Um, yeah, so um, that one's just I'm gonna be DJing, um, Josh is gonna be there with me. We're gonna play a little set, um, at Gospel in Soho on Wednesday. Um, my good friend Sean Glass does a little party there called Reunion where he kind of brings together all of his contacts from all these various different industries and um, just makes a really cool party about it so we're gonna do a couple of live songs and then um, I'll DJ a little bit with him and some other people um, the DJ sets are you know it's um, it's a lot of stuff that, um, that I'm inspired by um, that I'm really into right now and um, A lot of house and and disco edits, obviously. Of course. Um, (laughs) So um, I'm really looking forward to that. Um,
2: And then you're playing the McKittrick Hotel Halloween Party, which I was at last year. And it is phenomenal. Yeah. It's one of the best times ever. I think I've actually been a few years in a row. Uh, What? Will you be in costume? What Will the attire be? It's three different nights. Is that three different costumes? Like, how does it work? What's the plan?
1: Yeah, so I'm in the process of figuring that out right now, actually. Um, You know, stylists and designers get at me. We've got a lot of dressing to do.
6: Um. (laughs) I'm in in between Mexican Elvis. Mm. Miles Davis. Mm. uh, Teddy Gross.
1: Teddy, uh, pen, pet, Teddy Pentagram?
6: I mean... Th- I mean Teddy, Teddy Gross. <laughs> Teddy Pentagram is... That's a good one, actually. That's yeah, actually a very good one. For Halloween, that's well, very that was, good. That's how Charles Brandy used to call him. Oh, really? Teddy Pentagram.
2: Teddy Pentagram. Yeah. yeah. Close <laughs> enough. Close
1: enough. Um... Yeah so, um, yeah, so three different nights. Um, it's I guess the theme is like a, a kind of like haunted dystopian thing. So I'm feeling, personally, I'm feeling a lot of like Blade Runner type.
2: Naturally. Vibes, Perfect. which is,
1: you know, very Blather. close to my heart as well. Um, so I don't know. It's loose. But then we're playing in the mm-hmm. Mandalay Bar, which is like this very jazzy, like dark, sexy kind of room. So... Um, Honestly, at this point, I have no idea. I'm just going to, this is how I do Halloween every year. I just, I have so many fun outfits in my closet. I just kind of pull something I, I, out and.
6: Like I get the most amazing ideas like around June. Around June. Right. Like yeah. June. June. Yeah. It's yeah. like this is a great idea. And so, I, always, so I, I always think set. about like I should write them and I forget Forgotten. them. And it's like when it's close to Halloween, I just, like, oh, I forgot this amazing idea I had. And I got hung on that. I be, like, you can you be know? Teddy like Pentagram.
1: Like, I'll be Jessica Rabbit. Yes. Josh
2: To be determined Alright, <laughs> we want to make sure we have time for one more song uh, Where can people find your music, get your tour dates Hear your SoundCloud mixes
1: um, So We're on all digital platforms iTunes, um, Spotify Google Music, Amazon All these things um, we're, Honestly Most of the tour dates and everything Is through um, Instagram At 88palms um,
2: Not taken not <laughs> not take it so important these days
1: so important so um yeah so that's i think the best way to kind of keep up with us because um that's the only thing that i have time to update most of the time so
2: <laughs> perfect well we want to thank bruce bromberg for talking with darren early in the episode uh thank you to andrew poso for putting us all together thanks andrew jeet our new sunday engineer welcome to the family pleasure you, having G. you thank you to Cog as well uh perfect. Thanks for listening to Snacky Tunes. We'll be back with an all-new episode next week. What are you going to take us out with?
1: Um, This is Hollywood Sun. We're going to take you to the West Coast for a little bit of dreamy landscapes.
2: Perfect. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.